Dear listener, if you're a Ruby on Rails developer or an aspiring Rails developer, I want to tell you about a resource I've created that I guarantee can help you become a better Rails developer, probably. I want to give you this resource for free. I'll tell you what it is and how to get it, but first, a little background. I've worked at a lot of jobs in the past where they had a certain class of problems. Their code was messy and hard to understand, which meant it took forever to make any changes. They couldn't refactor and clean up their code because it was just too risky to do so. There was no way to know you weren't breaking something. Deployments were also quite scary. We didn't have any automated tests, so each deployment had to be preceded with a round of manual testing which wasn't always very thorough. Not to mention, manual testing meant that we couldn't deploy with any reasonable frequency, and therefore each deployment was huge, which made the problem even worse. And nobody wants to work at a place like that, so we had trouble attracting and retaining good people. It's no fun to work at a place from which all the smart people have fled. The problem at these places, or at least one of the main problems, was that they didn't have strong testing practices. I'm willing to bet, dear listener, that you've worked somewhere that has had those same kinds of problems. Maybe you even work someplace like that right now. And you want it to get better, but maybe you don't know how to write tests. And maybe the people you work with don't know how either, or maybe they do, but they don't have time to teach you. That's where I come in. I've created a guide called the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing. You can find it at railstestingguide.com. I've been teaching Rails testing for years, and so I've seen all the common Rails testing questions. Here are a few examples. Which test framework should I use, RSpec or Minitest? What level of test coverage should I shoot for? What are the different kinds of Rails tests? What are all the Rails testing tools and how do I use them? How do I add tests to an existing Rails project? The Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing covers these questions and several others. To get the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing, go to railstestingguide.com. Now on to the episode. Today, I'm here with Andrew Atkinson. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. So you and I first met in person. I think our first ever interaction, if I'm not mistaken, was in person at Sin City Ruby. That's right. Yeah. Um, Thanks again for coming to that. Um, I had a good time, and I get the impression that other people had a good time too. Um, I, I I don't remember how this came about, but you and I ended up speaking Spanish together for some amount of time. That's right. Yeah, that sticks out for me too. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was partly in part came about because there was a, a cash bar 
and we, uh, you know, I, at least speaking for myself, I had a glass of wine and I was like, yeah, let's practice Spanish. Let's do this. Vamos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To non-native English speakers, it's always uh, super helpful. Um, that was, it was really fun though. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, that was, that was our first encounter. Um, and then I've gotten to know you online since then a bit. Um, but for, for people who haven't, uh, People who haven't talked to you before aren't familiar with uh, your work and stuff like that. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, my name's Andrew Atkinson, and I'm based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, I work for a company called Fountain. And uh, at Fountain, I'm a staff software engineer and mostly work with Ruby on Rails, Postgres, Elasticsearch, and build uh, parts of the platform and um and work with product development teams. So yeah, I've been, I've been using Ruby on rails and Postgres for more than a decade. And lately I've been doing a lot of, um, writing about those topics. And then I've done some presentations recently as well. Yeah. So I've been using those technologies for maybe about the same amount of time as you, but probably in less depth, at least definitely with the, the PostgreSQL less, less depth. Um, so I will probably be conversational with some of the topics we're going to talk about. Um, but I'll, I'll lean on you for the real expertise. Um, and you gave a talk not long ago at RubyConf 2022, I believe it was. And I took a peek at that and I took some notes. And so I have some questions that, that maybe we can dive into if that sounds good. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Um, so I'll just go right down the list. Um, the first thing I made a note of was you talked about safe migrations on large, busy databases. This is something I have a little bit of experience with. I have a little bit of experience with things going wrong with migrations and stuff like that. First of all, maybe we can kind of frame this issue if, if people, you know, maybe a lot of people have worked on smaller, less busy applications, and so they haven't had to deal with with they haven't had to worry about that issue so why is this an issue that people have to worry about yeah well like you said if you if you work on applications where your database is uh you know if you use postgres or use mysql or another uh relational database and you have you know it's a relatively new application without a lot of usage um generally you're not going to run into issues where changing the structure of the database uh, causes any sort of trouble to the application. The issue that you start to run into when there's more uh, usage is that there's more concurrent usage of the database. So there's additional, you know, selects and inserts and updates and deletes happening at the same time as you might be changing the structure itself. So in Postgres, there's... Uh, a couple of situations and i tried to uh you know actually i was the the one that um i talked about in in the uh, RailsConf talk was about uh check constraint and it was a little contrived because uh check constraints aren't something that i think a lot of rails developers use a lot which i can talk about why but if you were to add a check constraint the gist was that all of those rows for a table that need you know they need to be checked uh, at the time the check constraint is being um, applied. And um, the problem with that is if you imagine if you've got 
millions of rows in a particular table, there might be some of those rows may be locked for updates from other transactions. So some other users are using the application and they're saving their, let's say it's their profile data or something. And uh, for those uh, short periods of time where those updates are occurring, uh, those rows um, those rows can't be modified. Okay, and, sorry, I'm going to stop you there yeah. because yep. I I have some catching up to do okay. with <laughs> what you said. Um, so first of all, check constraints. Um, I think I know what that is. Uh, if I do, I use different terminology for it. But what exactly do you mean when you say check constraints? Yeah, so um, a check constraint is one of the constraint types in Postgres. There's um, additional constraint types like that you're probably familiar with, like primary key uh, is a uh, constraint. Um, a foreign key is a constraint type. A foreign key will make sure that if you reference the ID from another table on a source table, that that row is, uh, Postgres will make sure that that row is there. It won't allow you to delete that other row that is referenced by that foreign key. A check constraint is a way to do sim- something similar to what a Rails uh, active record model validation would do. And I think the example I gave would be like checking a person's age. You might use it for kind of boundary condition checking, where if you want someone to insert some data and you know that you know values over 100 are never valid, um, and you know that values less than one are never valid, you might add a check constraint that says, this for this field, don't accept any integer value that's greater than 100 or less than one. And that will let you, you know, that will... Uh, allow you to have the database enforce that so that you know that data that's going in matches um, those requirements. Interesting. So I've actually never used a constraint in exactly that manner. Um, I've only used like foreign key constraints and stuff like that. Um, and and just to, just to fill it out, um, foreign key constraints are like, um, you know, it's basically the way I think of it is like, taking things that are logically nonsensical and making them physically impossible. Um, So, and, you know, not null constraints are part of that too. Like if there's an entity that has to have a relationship with some other entity, um, for some reason, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. So feel free to help me out if you can think of an example. Um, but these, yeah, like a, yeah, like can I interrupt you for a second? Like yeah. a like a comment on a post. Like if you you know you wouldn't want to create an orphaned record if you if a comment had a post ID foreign key column. You know if you deleted the post and uh, that comment now pointed at a post that didn't exist, that would be broken referential integrity. So you can ask Postgres, hey, you know, make sure this post never goes away because this con this comment record only really makes sense in the context of this post yeah exactly and even earlier than that like when you initially create the comment it wouldn't make any sense to create a comment that doesn't have a post id and so a not null constraint and a foreign key constraint would prevent that situation from arising and then like you say when you if if that post gets deleted um either you know two there's two things that make sense uh either the deletion of that post should make it so that comment also gets deleted or it should be that deleting that post is not allowed until 
the other comment gets deleted first. Yeah, and I'm familiar with the idea that a lot of Rails applications don't use database constraints like this. Right. And I, for one, think that is just like kind of crazy um, because it's like, well, I guess I'd call it an unnecessary risk. Like those database constraints cost so little and the benefit is so great and the consequences of messing that stuff up are so bad that it's like, why would you not do it? That's my view, at least. Yeah, I, I think that's a good view. Uh, I agree with that view. I think that, and there's another past RailsConf talk on adopting constraints and thinking about quality data and, and referential integrity and these kinds of things early on when you're building an application uh, to help avoid some pain later with you know duplicate rows or orphaned rows or invalid data, nonsensical data. And that stuff has has happened everywhere I've worked and it just becomes a big pain to debug and um unfortunately there are limitations to you know like uh, validations at the application level they do work most of the time i mean of course they're really good active record validations um but uh they they can't make the same guarantee that a database level constraint can as far as you know, accepting that, like that is the purpose of the constraint is to enforce that um, input is not in violation of that constraint or that row update or insert will be rejected. And you can, you can actually, you know, you can play around with this locally too. You can um, uh, play around with um, creating deliberate violations and, and ensure that Postgres gives you an exception, you know, that a constraint is violated. So yeah, I, I generally recommend people would, particularly if you're building a new application and, um, you know, to put as much energy into, uh, you know, ensuring quality data, both in the primary table and in the relationships between data models as, you know, as you can. And I think, I think in, for a lot of newer Rails developers, which includes me a little while ago, uh, the, you know, it's, some of it's just lack of awareness of these capabilities that the database provides and um, possibly they're not as well documented on the framework documentation, which kind of makes sense because they're database specific. But I do think that as Rails applications have, you know, Rails has been selected as the framework for, you know, a lot of companies and products over the last decade plus, a lot of these applications are now very mature and they're facing some of these problems of, you know, that come along with scale or that could have come along from having um, the absence of these constraints, uh, you know, previously. So I, I think there is more documentation around leaning into and leveraging these capabilities of the database. And yeah. Yeah. And for a long time myself, maybe not for a long time, but there was maybe a time where I myself, even though I've always been an advocate of database constraints, I kind of conceded that these constraints maybe felt sort of academic. Um, but then as I gained experience, basically anywhere I worked where they weren't diligent about using constraints, problems arose. And so it's not an academic concern. Like those things actually matter. And if you don't use constraints, you are likely to develop actual problems. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's it's one of those 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, the way that I've learned about a lot of these capabilities are coming at it from the other side where you're starting from problems and then you're researching uh, how do you fix these problems and are these problems common? And then you realize a lot of the problems are common and there's common solutions for them too, like adding constraints to avoid duplicate rows. So this this uh, check constraint one, just to go back to that for a minute, mm-hmm. um, this comes from uh, Andrew Kane's Strong Migrations gem as well, which I'm a big fan of. We use where I work now and at the place I worked before. And um, it helps to encode some of these good practices around common problems that can occur on uh, you know, bigger databases with a lot of concurrent activity. And so this check constraint one is cool because you can say it's, you know, it's, uh, there's a validate false Ruby level option you can apply in your Rails migration that then will, um, you know, as Rails migrations do, they get, it gets turned into a SQL statement and the SQL statement will have not valid in it. So you can apply the constraint initially, but not validate it. And what that means is it's in effect for all new rows and new row modifications that are occurring, but not for the historical rows. And the reason to do that is because uh, that way your deployment is safe, right? You've introduced this this new database object, this check constraint, um, and it's safe to apply. It's it uh, You're going to start to receive the benefit of the constraint for all the new things, but for all the old things, you're going to need to validate them eventually. And then you can kind of decouple that validation phase from that deployment phase. So for example, you could do it like, you know, off peak, you could run it at night, run it on the weekend. And once you've done that, then your constraint is applied to all the new rows and all the existing rows in the table. Yeah. So let me repeat some of that back and see if I understand. And by the way, if anybody hears a nasty hacking noise in the background, I just want you to know that's not me. That's a cat (laughs) about six feet away from me. Um, I don't want you to think I'm over here just uh, making these disgusting noises. Um, anyway, so this this idea of running these migrations with validations turned off, my understanding of what you mean by that, because I've run into this issue too, is uh, when you change the database schema, the structure of the database, um, the changes aren't always consistent with what the application considers valid. And so in order to make that leap, you have to tell the the application to just like, all right, you're out of the picture for a minute application where we have to make some database changes now. And then you, you let it do its thing again after the changes. Because if you just let it run its validations on everything, it's just not going to work out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that validate false option... I'm I'm just I happen to have the code up here in front of me and I'm looking at it. Uh and the um the one I was talking about, there's a Rails option called add check constraint, and then there's an option to that. You can you supply the table name and then the definition of the constraint. You can give the constraint a name, and then you can also say validate colon false. You know, you can you can set a value for validate. And um that will when when this when that change is applied to your database, you will have a check constraint that you can view for that table. So if you added it to your posts table, your comments table, you know in Postgres you can do backslash d table name, 
and you can view, you know, of course, all the table level details. You can see all the fields, and then you can see on the bottom, you'll see the constraints. So you'll see that check constraint. It's actually added, but you'll see that it says not valid. And that's coming from that validate false option. So the SQL statement will have, you know, not valid as part of the creation of that check constraint. And what you'd have to do later is validate that check constraint. Well, you don't have to, but what you can optionally do is validate that check constraint. And then that will apply it to all of the rows historically. And this this is like the tip of the iceberg of a bunch of different concepts in Postgres. And I mean, I, I've, I've been learning about these as well, but the um, the iceberg is the, uh, the idea of... Um, uh, lock. Well, so there's isolation levels and then the, the lock, uh, type that is acquired for when this structure change was made. Okay. So, sorry. Hang on. Before yeah, we, before yeah, we yeah. even get into that, um, I'm glad I asked about the validations thing because it sounds like I had totally the wrong idea. Um, I was thinking about active record validations and it sounds like you were talking about actually temporarily turning off the, the enforcement of the database level constraints. Is that right? Yeah, I think I got ahead of things too. Let me actually go like rewind it a little bit back. So the the intention of this slide and this topic area of this talk was, hey, if you're ever adding a check constraint, okay, actually, let me simplify it more. If you're on a small database, new startup, new project, you don't have a lot of users, just add the check constraint. Don't even worry about the validate false. The, the constraint will actually check all of the rows on the table, but that's fine. It's not going to cause an application error. Like it's not going to be a, a SQL statement that runs against the database and hangs for minutes. Um, it could be on a really big database. So on a really big database, use the validate false option when you add the constraint and then come back later and as a second operation, apply the constraint and like validate the constraint, which is a different um, SQL statement operation and acquires a different lock and is less disruptive than if you were to have applied that check constraint right away to all of your rows in your really big table. So the intention of that really was to basically say like, hey, there's these two scenarios. And for big databases, you should probably use the second scenario where you add the constraint first in an, in what's called a not valid state. But yeah, it is a, it is confusing because it's an overloaded term where it, it isn't really talking about active record validations and calling valid on a model and all that. That's all different stuff. Okay. Um, I'd be lying if I said I understand. Um, okay. So maybe let's let's see if we can get me to a place where I understand. Because if I don't understand, maybe the listener does not understand. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So first of all, let's let's like start at the beginning and go even slower this time so like first of all there there are various commands that you can use in migrations uh to do various things obviously you can add columns remove columns whatever um and there exist rails migration commands to create constraints yep and am i right to understand that you can for example invoke one of these rails commands to create for example a foreign key and that command can take an argument that says skip the validations on this constraint do i have that right 
Uh, well, let me, so I, I did pull up the documentation for the check constraint. I need to double check for foreign key constraint, but let's just talk about, well, let me, let's, let's actually just really look quickly at. Yeah. And we don't have to use the foreign key constraint example. We could use any kind of constraint. Okay. We'll talk about the, let's talk about the check constraint then. Okay. Just cause I already have that example ready to go. Um, I think it's probably the same for foreign key constraints, but okay. So. And yeah. I, I apologize because I'm I'm going to interrupt you like a thousand times. But when you say check constraint, what exactly do you mean in this context? Because I thought that was like an umbrella term that encompassed foreign key constraints, not null constraints, stuff like that. But does check constraint by itself mean something else? It does. It's a specific type of constraint. I see. Okay. So, so what does that do? Yeah, so um, I just Googled Postgres constraints, and they have an API documentation page where they list out the different types of constraints. So as you said before, not null is a constraint type. Uh, we talked about um, primary key constraints, and we've talked about foreign key constraints, and there's some other ones. There's one that is, you know, so yeah, this, this topic was quite uh, packed, I think, because there's another constraint type called a check constraint. So that's the name of the constraint type. And um, you, there's a SQL, there's an SQL keyword that is check. And when you use that word check, as you create that constraint type, that's how you specifically create a check constraint. If you didn't supply the word, the keyword check, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't work or it'd be some other constraint type. I don't actually know what would happen, but <laughs> uh, so you'd, you'd want to, um, uh, use that keyword check. And on the Postgres documentation page, just to yeah, slow it down a little bit more, even I think their example is better. It's they added a, a check constraint uh, and it's on a price field. So if you imagine a products table, well, they have an example here, a products table, it's got a price. It wouldn't ever make sense to have a price for a thing that's a negative number, right? Like this doesn't cost negative $5. So the check constraint has an expression and the expression is that the price is always greater than zero. And a check constraint can be added as part of a create table statement, or it could be added to a particular column to validate the values in that column at any point in time. Okay. Okay. I can now say confidently that I understand what a check constraint is. Great. <laughs> okay. And Okay, so so now there's an additional option. Like, well, actually, uh, please ask whatever you're. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just gonna see if if it makes sense in the sequence to now progress to the to talking about where we would invoke the Rails command in a migration to create a check constraint. And I was just checking to see if my understanding was correct that when you create that check constraint via that Rails command, you could pass into that command, validate false or whatever the exact syntax is. Do I have that kind of right? Yep, you have that right. Yeah, so you would say, you know, if you weren't using check constraints, but you wanted to make sure prices were more than zero, you might add a, a Rails model validation, an active record model validation that says, you know, maybe before create that the price, you know, Ruby uh, getter method, you read the value in it, you make sure that it's more than zero. 
what you could do is you could also enforce that in the database with this check constraint. And if you did that validate false option, then that gives you a little bit more safety. So that's really the, you know, kind of bringing it all the way back again to the beginning. Like the idea would be, this is a, this is an optional choice that you would make for more safety. And the safety that it would bring you is that it's not going to check all of the rows in the table at the time the constraint is added to the database. And okay. That means I, that it's I, um, be, yeah. Go ahead. I apologize for being the world's most annoying person, but um, I'm going to stop you again and ask, okay, so the validation stuff, this is like, I think maybe it gets a little bit tedious even to talk about, but I think it's important to get to like the the level of precision that's necessary in order to gain the correct understanding. Maybe we can just entirely throw out active record validations for a second and, and sure. have those not be part of the picture. Um, am I right to understand? So, okay. So when you create those check constraints, is there the idea of saying, don't apply these check constraints at the time this constraint is being created and we defer the checking to a later time. Do I understand that part right? Um, there are foreign key, there are deferrable uh, foreign key constraints, but that's... The part I'm trying to pin down is just the part where we're talking about the validate false thing. And yep. the big question I'm trying to answer is... Did that apply to the active record validations or did that apply to the check constraints? Oh, that applied to the check constraint. The validate false. When it, when validate false is used for a check constraint in a Rails migration, that's applying that's it's it's limited. It's it's like a, a means of using the active record migrations kind of DSL to generate a SQL statement. That is going to be like a alter table, alter column, add check constraint with this expression. The expression would be like price is greater than zero. And then validate false directly translates to not valid on the end of that SQL statement. I see. And that's optional. Okay. That's optional. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, great. Um, that advances my understanding a little bit. I understand that part now. Okay. And then how okay okay so i understand that now maybe we can now talk about why we would do that like what problem would yep. it cause if we didn't do that yeah so it's not guaranteed to cause a problem so um part of my intention in selecting this topic was uh you know to try to choose topics for this talk that may come up for folks and what has happened in my working experience is a migration that I've created, I've deployed, and it's failed to apply. And usually what happens is the migration is running, like the statement is issued from the client to this Postgres server. Something's happening, you know, it's 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 doing its thing. And then like the statement probably times out. And um, another pro potential problem is the statement runs and because it's checking rows or it's it's otherwise touching rows on that table, um, there could be other unrelated or there could be other queries that are happening in the application that start to back up. So those would be blocked. And what's happening is they're getting 
blocked because they're they're trying to acquire a lock. We're, that's a whole other topic. I don't know if we have time. You know, I don't. But they're trying to acquire a lock, so they're they're blocked and they're being they're waiting, and they might start to hit a statement timeout and then start to cause application errors. So these are the possible. These are some of the possible problems that could occur when you do anything in Postgres, anything that is modifying the structure. And I, this is true for all databases, but anything modifying the structure, um, particularly like the, to me, the takeaway here is if you work on a database that's large or that is, you know, both large and has a lot of activity, because again, this really has to do with both of those things. Like it needs to also have a lot of activity. If you have a large database and there's no other activity, no other users using it, um, you won't have a problem applying the check constraint without, you know, uh, in any form that we've discussed. Like you can do it however, you, that's fine. It's really about um, both being large where a lot of rows need to be checked. And we're talking like when you get into the millions of rows and probably when your database database overall size is hundreds of gigabytes to terabytes, like that kind of size range. When you're in that size and you have a lot of active users of the application issuing queries against those same tables, then if you apply a check constraint without the not valid option, it's possible that you will uh, lock the table to apply that um, database object and it will affect other concurrent queries running and it'll cause application errors. I see, okay. Okay, well that satisfies my curiosity about that particular aspect of it. Okay, so we've advanced a little bit further. Yeah. Um, a worry that I have is if I were to apply a change like that, where I where I introduce a check constraint, but I tell it don't actually perform the validation, I would be fearful that my database would be allowed to enter an inconsistent state in a way that's unrecoverable. Um, but that worry must be, well, maybe that's a legitimate worry, but is there is there an approach that a person can take to either guarantee that that doesn't happen or to greatly reduce the risk that that happens? How do people deal with that concern? Yeah, well, I think the not valid option is simpler than you're thinking. And it's, it's really... Um, this took me a little bit to understand when I was first learning about it. It's really just about the only, so if we're just talking about check constraints and adding a statement as not valid, I have a really good uh, hash rocket post up here that expresses this whole topic really concisely. I'll send it to you. I don't know if you have, I think you have show notes. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's really just the way they word it is, is uh, nice. It's what they say is you can optionally add the not valid uh, keywords and what that means is it doesn't enforce the constraint on existing records. So the inverse of that is the constraint is enforced on new records. Mm -hmm. So there is no, so, and the com compared with what you said earlier, um, there isn't any risk of uh, corruption or, yeah, because it's not going to get worse. Because yeah, like, it's not going to get worse, right? Yeah, yeah, the existing records already didn't have that constraint applied to them, so that's it's not going to go backwards. And then it is getting applied to the new records, so we can't introduce any um, data that doesn't satisfy those constraints. 
And then after the migration has been run, do you then tell the constraint, you, you flip that flag, so instead of validate false or whatever it exactly is, you tell it, okay, now we do want to validate and it retroactively applies to the existing records. Is that the way that works? Yep, you got it. So that's, and there's an official, there's, you know, again, like you can do any any kind of update or modification to Postgres, you can do using active record uh, migrations. You just may have to do it with like direct SQL statements if there isn't, if it isn't kind of supported with the migrations DSL. Um, and the reason I'm mentioning that is because I didn't actually know about this prior to creating the slide, but there is a there is a Rails migration option called validate check constraint, which is what you would want to use in that situation. So in the sli- in the presentation, I said essentially you're taking that one operation where you just add the constraint; it's valid for all rows, both existing rows and new rows, and you're breaking that into two operations. The first phase is the first operation is adding the constraint, you can think of it just for the new rows. I feel like the not valid name is confusing. You could just think of it as new rows. And then the second phase or the second migration you do is validating it for existing rows or old rows. And and so you can use validate check constraint. And so you would supply the, the table name and then the name of the constraint. And that will run uh, another statement against your database. You could do that in a Rails migration, you could do it manually in a like a PSQL prompt, uh, and it does it um, acquires a less disruptive lock. So it's not just about the timing difference; like it's not just about deferring the operation to off-peak and deferring, like allowing you to do the original migration and then a follow-up migration later. That is a benefit of this approach, but it also does acquire a less uh, disruptive lock for other live transactions, the validation constraint versus adding the constraint. Does that make sense? I believe that makes sense. I'm a little bit reeling from all the details that that we've been discussing, (laughs) but I, I think I at least mostly followed what you said. Yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway would be like, if you ever run into a situation where so here's here's something I think that would be good if you aren't as interested in a lot of these details, but you want to know, like, am I going to run into these problems with my Rails app that uses Postgres? Like, I, I always tell people, at least just familiarize yourself with the strong migrations, what they call the um, dangerous, potentially dangerous operations. And these have been written up about for years. There's also this, like, uh, Braintree post that I used for a lot of years in the past. And it, it basically describes known common scenarios where certain types of structure changes can be problematic. So if you're familiar with those, or if you encounter one of those in your app in the wild, you can kind of work backwards. And then the level of detail you go into is really just, I guess, up to how much you want to learn about this, like what's working, why it is the way it is. Um, so this one was chosen because this one was, it's, like I said in the beginning, it was a little bit... Um, contrived because um, it was an example where, well, I mean, I think in Rails, check constraints are a little less common because people use model validation. So that's one reason that it's um, it might be new. It might be kind of too much content here that's new, but it does, it does um, 
serve a real world purpose that I think is useful in a lot of applications. And it does, uh, it's, it is something that is current, even in the current versions of Postgres will take this um, disruptive lock if you try to add the constraint without being not valid at first. Um, and the reason I mentioned that, and then I'll pause because I, again, I'm providing probably way too much detail here is Postgres developers over time as they, uh, they've, they've actually improved Postgres to eliminate some of these potentially dangerous operations, which I think is really awesome. I mean, even compared with 10 years ago, you know, there's, and strong migrations mentions this, but if you were to add a column with a default value, um, see which one yeah so yeah so this this one's mentioned on strong migrations but in the past sort of like this whole check constraint discussion we've been having if you added a column with a default value that was um yeah i guess uh i guess it's just any column with a default value prior to postgres 11 that would do what they call a full table rewrite and that would be really problematic for big databases with a lot of concurrent activity. It would cause a lot of locks and cause a lot of errors. And Postgres developers in version 11 and newer, they've they've actually fixed that and they've made it a safe operation. So it's something that application developers don't have they don't have to worry about that anymore. They can just add their columns with defaults and carry on. <laughs> now, a question that I have about um, this. Um I wish, you know, side note, I kind of wish they would have called it something like apply retroactively or something like yeah. that instead of because that makes it maybe more self-evident what it does. Um, but for this like validation approach where it only applies to the new records, then you can retroactively apply it to the old ones. Um, again, I personally have not ever used a check constraint before. I've used like not null constraints and stuff like that. I assume the same concept can apply to, for example, a not null constraint. Uh, that's a good question. Because um, that's, um, you know, that's a type of issue I've had in the past, and I don't know if this would even address it, but it's like you have a database table and you want to apply a not null constraint to something, but it happens to be the case that you actually have some nulls in that column, and so you can't apply a um, not null constraint. And I guess in that case, you wouldn't want to do the exact same thing. You wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to defer the check and then apply it later. You would just want to have it be permanently the case that it only um, constrains new records and it ignores the old records. But I don't know if it applies for that type of constraint or not. Right. Yeah, it is. It is um, kind of non-symmetric. The um, there isn't. I don't think that. Um, to my knowledge, I, I think it's safe to always add a. You know, assuming that you have um, no rows with nulls, as you said. Uh, let's see. Setting no. In my scenario, I do have rows with nulls. Okay, so you have rows with nulls, and you want to. Um, eventually add a not null constraint but you need to get rid of those rows with nulls first right or or the the scenario i'm imagining is you have a column that does have some nulls um going forward your expectation and requirement is that no new rows gets get added with nulls in that column and so i'm wondering if you could add that constraint 
with validate false on it so that the constraint would apply to new rows, but those old rows with nulls in that column would not be a problem. Yeah, it's a good, it's a very reasonable suggestion based on this whole conversation we've been having. But I, I don't think it's a thing. I'm going to check, though, because I might get in trouble if I, <laughs> I don't want to say it wrong. So, I mean, just a quick check on the documentation of uh, constraints for, for not null constraints is that there isn't a not valid option. Um, like, conceptually, though, I get what you're saying, and it would be kind of cool. I guess I, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that there was some discussion about this, maybe just in terms of like symmetry with the kind of expectations around check constraints. But I think maybe, so now I'm just going to speculate, like mm -hmm. maybe if, um, if you had this hypothetical not null, not valid kind of uh, option for a not null constraint, um, I guess it wouldn't really do anything. Well, no, it would do something. It would be just for new rows. And then you'd still have to address it for old rows. But it would create like a... It is, I guess, a difference I'm thinking about just in thinking through this is that compared with the check constraint, which has... Um, I guess like which excludes the possibility of, well, that's not true either. Cause so for example, if we go back to our price greater than zero example, if you had it, like, let's say prior to adding that check constraint, you had a row in there with a negative one price. Then if you added that check constraint as a not valid, um, the, Okay, so I actually I would need to test it, but I don't think you could add the check constraint as a not valid, even with with a row that violates the constraint. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah, that would be an interesting thing to check. Um, I that, yeah, I, I guess. Well, no, I guess that doesn't really make sense though, because it the intention is to only validate new rows, and the intention is to not validate all the old rows. So I guess it would allow it, and. That is like a interesting. Um, those are two interesting cases, like not null compared with check constraint, and the the option of that not valid. Uh, yeah, we'll have to follow up on this. I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of maybe it's a little academic, but in you know in the real world, what I would do is I would remove those null rows so that I could introduce the constraint, and I would expect. You know, in practice, what happens is you try to introduce the not null constraint and it doesn't apply because it says there are rows that violate that constraint. And so you have to, you know, you're forced to address those either through like removing those rows or changing the values of those columns that you're trying to add the constraint to. Right. I was going to say that even if it turns out that it is possible to add a type of not null constraint that only applies to future records. I don't know if that's the best possible approach I can think of. Um, it's maybe more logical and, and better in the long run if, like you say, you take those rows with nulls and just remove those rows entirely if you don't need them anymore. Or you could conceivably create w whatever table that references. You could create a new row that's just like um, a row that means nothing and point them all at that. You know, it's not perfect, but that would at least allow you to add that not null constraint. 
or a very pragmatic solution, if you want to use the word solution, is just to not worry about constraining that column um, and just live with the fact that you have some nulls there and you're not easily able to constrain it and, and just live with that imperfection, which, you know, all, all things considered in certain scenarios might actually be the most reasonable thing to do. And I've certainly done that. Yeah, that that can be a good trade-off. Like if if the cost of having those nulls, you know, is low in terms of like bugs you can point to, um, you know, it's it may not be something you want to solve. But yeah, I mean, just just to um, I do want to follow up on this though. From you know, for people that suffered through me bumbling around about this in the earlier portion of this discussion, uh, the adding adding the not null actually is specifically addressed on strong migrations and it is it's the same problem where if you as when you add a check constraint without the not valid it's going to check all of the rows that's going to also acquire an an exclusive lock for that period of time and depending on how big the table is um, in order to go through and evaluate all those rows that lock would be in place for a long time potentially blocking more transactions etc so what they say to get around that Kind of like what you said is you can't we don't have this not valid option directly on not null um what they what they recommend instead is to introduce a check constraint so you would um you would add a check constraint that allows you to say this column is not null and then you could add that check constraint as not valid like we've been talking about and now that check constraint is going to do the same job as what a not null constraint would do for all the new rows being introduced. It's going to make sure that it's going to disallow null values for that column, but you still have the problem of the old values. So um, I think that's going to be left up to the, um, the developer to address. So they would need to um, address those null values in some way that allows them uh, later than if they want to, to introduce a not null constraint that would then replace that check constraint. And that's kind of like a number of steps. So in practice, like, you know, I imagine that a lot of times people are like, that's too many steps. I'm not gonna do all these steps, but that would be the way that you would migrate um, or you would transition uh, a real production database that allows nulls um, where you wanna introduce a not null on a column you essentially would use the check constraint, not valid mechanism to make that happen. Okay. Yeah. And just to explicitly say why I feel like the, um, the constraint that only applies to future records and just leaving it like that permanently might not be the greatest solution is because it might not be very self-evident what's going on because an outside person not familiar with how all that was done they might notice that, okay, I can't insert anything new that has a null in this column, yet there are old records with null, or better, even worse, um, this person might join after this constraint is put in place, and so they develop a belief that this column has a not null constraint on it. But then sometime later, they discover um, rows that do have a null in that column, and it totally defies their belief and it just confuses the hell out of that person 
and yeah. it costs them a bunch of time and confusion. That seems like a bad thing to to open yourself up to. Yeah, you actually bring up a really good point that like besides the technical benefits here, there's a I don't know if you want to call it non-technical, but there's a human benefit to the learnability or the um there's another kind of popular word for this, but the yeah, discoverability. Yeah, like discoverability. it should be self-evident how it works. Yeah, like a kind of revealing, like intention revealing, I know is another word like for um, you know, more from like a testing context, but um okay, so practically speaking, if you take a database centric view of your application, you know, forget about Rails for a minute and you just pop open your Postgres database and start describing tables, it's really helpful to see that a column has a not null constraint on it. You immediately know something about the values. If you saw a in, in similar, so this is a negative one. If you saw a check constraint that is enforcing not nulls, that would be a little odd. It would be like, what? Well, but you can use a not null constraint. Uh, you might do that because of what we just talked about to like, because you were kind of transitioning a column that allowed nulls to a column that doesn't allow nulls by way of intermediate step with check constraint not valid. But like, you should probably replace that later too for the same reason. You want like the database to express the constraints around the data that it's storing in a way that is helpful to the reader that, you know, like, and I do that all the time. I open up, I'm working on an application and I go and it's helpful to say, what are the indexes? What are the foreign key constraints? Let me look at these two tables together. What are the not nullable columns? What are the default values? Those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll also comment that, there's a value in having your database mechanisms be idiomatic and a not null constraint is much more idiomatic than a check constraint with a valid false that checks for not nulls. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That would be weird. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone really would do that um, in a long-term sense. It would be to transition that, but um, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you brought up that point about like, could you introduce a not null that's not valid? And because it, I wonder, like we had said before, if this has ever come up on like the Postgres uh, developers mailing list and if it's been debated or, you know, or not. But yeah, yeah. the um, I, I agree. Like in terms of idiomatic or conventional or discoverable or not, I, like, uh, you know, there's there's like the principle of least surprise or the principle of least astonishment you know, it's like, you know, um, doing things that are conventional helps aid the readers, newcomers to the project to understand something about the data that's stored in the structures. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Well, I think we got right to the bottom of that. I think I can say <laughs> for sure that, um, you know, that hypothetical scenario, you know, it's a common um it's a common need people are faced with or a common situation people are faced with. Uh, and I had a hypothetical, unconventional solution to it. And I'm now of the opinion that my hypothetical solution is a pretty bad one. So I'm never going to do that. So I'm, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that one. Um, All right. Yeah. So I had like a whole list of questions to potentially ask you. But that first question was meaty enough that we spent an entire episode on it. And you know what? I would venture to say we could spend at least a couple more episodes just on that question of safe migrations. Um, But obviously we'll save that for another time. 
Um, before we conclude, um, is there any place where you'd like to send people where they can see more about what you're up to and all that stuff? Sure. Yeah. I uh, write about Postgres and Ruby on Rails at my website, which is andyatkinson.com. And um, I wanted to, again, shout out Andrew Kane, Lucas Fiddle, and some other folks that are big in the Postgres and Ruby on Rails community and build these great open source tools that help bridge this gap between all of these like, you know, great database capabilities and make, you know, making them more accessible to Rails developers. And yeah, I, I really, I'm a huge fan of the Strong Migrations project because it's, you know, again, even if you don't use it, like there's so much knowledge that's packed into it uh, that I think can help you be a better developer. Awesome. Well, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. And Andy, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jason.